Hello, and welcome to Simply Faithful, a place for Christian conversations without the hype. We are here to discuss life, faith, and ministry with each other and with other interesting people. We want to save you a place at the table with us. Here at Simply Faithful, we are hoping to begin conversations about Christianity that you can continue in your life. This week, Angels, Demons, and the Spiritual Realm. Welcome back, friends, to Simply Faithful. This is Christian Conversations Without the Hype. My name is Gray Ewing, pastor of New Valley Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is Eric Tunges. I pastor Kishwaukee Community EPC near Rockford, Illinois. Eric, I want to take us somewhere where many fear to tread. It is a discussion on angels and demons and the spiritual realm. And for my own story, I remember growing up and hearing about these things in the late 80s and early 90s. I couple of books came out by a guy named Frank Peretti. Uh, did you listen to Frank Peretti or read Frank Peretti books? Oh, yeah. I remember reading those books, although I think I read them more the way I read fantasy novels than the way that I, a lot of evangelical young kids read them. So if you're not familiar, This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness were a couple of his books, and they really dove deep into this idea of spiritual warfare. And it was Christian-based stories that basically pulled the covers back on the spiritual realm and let us see how angels and demons were interacting with one another and how our prayers and faith seemingly led to these cosmic battles uh, for people's lives and marriages and that kind of thing. And what it basically had the effect on me was that it scared me to death because we listened to it on audiobook, probably the first audiobook I ever listened to. And those demon voices were like really scary. So I'd stay up at night thinking about demons circling my room. I'm not really sure that that is exactly how scripture talks about it, but it does talk about it. So we are, we're here to talk about it today as well, this idea of the spiritual realm. Uh, many people seem reluctant to even go there, this talk of angels and demons and Satan and cosmic battles that seems like something that would be out of a book rather than something that we should actually talk about. Some people, on the other hand, are very preoccupied with spiritual warfare and seem to think that you know, the only really way to be close to God is to study about angels and demons and to think about them and that kind of thing. But if you just look at the, the biblical data from the New Testament and the Old Testament, but mostly the New Testament, you see the spiritual realm everywhere. You see talks about thrones and dominions and cherubim and seraphim and authorities and powers, angels, archangels, principalities, and then all the names for Satan, the prince of the ruler of the air, the ruler of this world, the adversary, the father of lies, Lord of the flies, Beelzebub. I mean, we could just go on and on about the spiritual realm from a New Testament perspective. But first, let me just turn it over to you, Eric, and say, this is not something that we should believe in, right? And this is something that we've advanced beyond. Am I correct? Well, no, um, although obviously (laughs) that's the reason you're asking the question. But, But it is true that part of the struggle for many of us is that we live in a kind of modernistic, secular world here in the American West. And so it's interesting. It's not that people don't believe in the spiritual. The vast majority of people in our world still believe in the spiritual to some extent. If you ask Americans about those things, right, it's like 90% of them or more end up believing in different spiritual beliefs. But what is true is that we live in an age where there's this deep sort of skepticism even as some people still believe in those things. And so uh, we just feel like 
because of our rationality and because of the worldview that we live within, that it's sort of hard to really believe in those things, even though lots of people to some extent still do. I feel like we're obligated, compelled at this point to bring up the classic C.S. Lewis quote that always gets discussed when this is discussed in Christian circles, which is, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, about demons, he means there. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Do you think that holds up? Yeah, to some extent, although I've always felt like there's maybe a way in which for many people, what's really happening is that they both believe and disbelieve in different ways at the same time. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, we should just say, I mean, as we're going to dive into this, scripture is unapologetically committed to the existence of a spiritual realm, which exists alongside the physical realm, and the two realms interact with each other. God exists in both. Our lives have dimensions that extend into both. And I mean, if you believe in God, right, in, in, in any sense, then the idea that there are spiritual things happening shouldn't really be that hard to believe in. That's right. There have been some strains of theology that really de-emphasize miracles and the spiritual realm, but still hold to other things like believing in God, like some of the classic liberal theology, like folks like Schleiermacher and others that came out of that school of thought. Schleiermacher in particular said that about angels and demons, we should just go ahead and say that that's obviously childish. But many things would be obviously childish if we held them up to that same standard. Yeah, although I don't know that Schleiermacher would have believed in those things either. <laughs> that would be a whole other conversation. Yeah, you don't need to know anything about Schleiermacher, really. I don't really even know why I mentioned his name. But okay, so we should believe in it. That's what we're saying. We should believe in it on some level. That doesn't mean that we should believe everything that everyone has ever said about angels and demons. So what we want to do first is talk about some misconceptions that may be out there and then maybe dive into the things that we can know about the spiritual realm. So first, what's a misconception, Eric, that comes to your mind when we talk about the spiritual realm? I'll start with maybe one of the most widespread for a lot of people that I encounter. And it's always kind of puzzled me because I don't understand where they get it. But it's the idea that we become angels when we die that you die and you get a halo and some wings and you kind of float around in heaven. And that's just fundamentally not the way scripture pictures it. Humans and angels are two distinct types of beings with distinct roles and distinct stories. And when we die, we will be humans at rest with the Lord. And then in the resurrection, we'll be humans with new human bodies. We never become angels in this thing. Yeah, maybe It's a Wonderful Life is responsible for our American obsession with that. <laughs> Since every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, that's yeah, that, you know, that kind of whole theory has kind of a saccharine, sweet thing to it that really we don't see anywhere in Scripture. Another one I want to bring up, and I want to be careful here because there is a cosmic battle going on, the unseen realm that we've talked about in Scripture. So there is a fight between the forces of light and the forces of darkness in this world. However, they are not equal and opposite. That's oftentimes a misconception that there is kind of black and white in the world, a yin and yang, uh, chaos and order. Those things are true on some level, but the way that Scripture talks about the fight between good and evil, God and Satan, is clearly shows that God is in control of that fight. So we see Satan in famously in the book of Job coming to God and asking his permission to tempt Job away from faithfulness to God because God has been so good to him. And so 
he gets his permission and God gives him the permission to do it. And so it's clear that God is in control of the situation. Clearly, Jesus is in control when he's being tempted in Matthew chapter four. And by Satan, he has the upper hand. So it's not completely equal and opposite fighting. Yeah, that's actually an important thing to stress. We're going to talk more about what we can know positively in a minute, but I'll go ahead and just acknowledge like you mentioned a couple, but throughout scripture, it is really clear that Satan himself is still under the reign and rule of God. So for example, in First Chronicles 21, it famously says that Satan comes and tempts David in order to take up the census, which then leads to pride and issues in Israel. But in Second Samuel 24, it says that God is the one who leads David into that. Or Colossians 1.16, part of the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, it talks about how Jesus has dominion over thrones and authorities and principalities, the, you know, all of the language of the spiritual realm. And so while Satan and demons are opposed to God and to his kingdom, they're also in a sense within the reign of God and they are subordinate beings. One thing I want to talk about as well, Eric, with this, this may be a misconception that some people have, this idea of a personal guardian angel. Uh, that is early in the church, like Cyprian, I think, and even Origen or church fathers that talked about everybody having an angel. And my theory has been that's been mostly speculation. I don't really see that in scripture. What do you think about the personal guardian angel? Yeah, there's really not. There's one verse in the whole Bible that people go to, basically just one verse, which is in Matthew eighteen ten. Uh, Jesus says, see that you not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What what that means is actually not at all elaborated. There's nowhere else in scripture that works that out. And so maybe from that verse, you can say, well, it seems like there are sort of angels connected to specific believers in some way, but it says nothing about them watching over or guarding them or any of that. That's right. And even if it is angels there, it could be that they are the ministering spirits for that time or something. It doesn't mean that they're assigned forever to those people or something like that. Another misconception that I don't really think people really hold to, but it's very popular in our culture, which is kind of the angel on the left shoulder and the demon on the right shoulder. The kind of thing that the spiritual warfare is more of a metaphor for our conscience, like how we kind of engage with whether we should do the right thing or the wrong thing, and that we have angels and we have demons, and whoever gets the upper hand kind of wins. And that's something I think that people probably don't hold to very much, but it is a popular misconception we should say is not necessarily true. Well, and connected to that, we should just say that almost everything that people physically imagine about demons and angels is not biblical. Um, it's largely drawn from from paganism and things like that. But, you know, angels with flowing white robes and wings and halos, like you, you can't really establish that biblically. In fact, most of the times that angels appear in scripture, they seem to be just impressive looking human type creatures. And all of the, the horns and hooves and things of demon are, are drawn from non-Christian folklore. None of that is in any way anchored in scripture. No, in fact, the scripture is pretty clear that we will mistake demons for angels at times. And perhaps angels for humans beings, because the author of Hebrews talks about entertaining angels unaware. That's right. The last thing I want to say here about misconceptions, and that we may have a discussion here, maybe some disagreement. I think that there is a misconception sometimes that everything that we do is related to spiritual warfare. And what I really am getting at here is that the, the devil made me do it defense, which is that I am trying to do the right thing, but, you know, a demon got in my way. And sometimes 
we're just sinners. Like we, we chose to sin in this particular instance. That doesn't mean that there aren't spiritual realities somewhere there, but I don't think that necessarily they are controlling every impulse towards sin. But do you disagree? Well, I definitely agree with that specifically, but I do want to kind of nuance it a little bit because there is another sense in which biblically you could view everything as sort of spiritual warfare. And maybe we'll talk about this more later, but like when in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about, you know, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual powers and things in the heavenly places. And that's where he calls believers to put on the full armor of God. He seems to have in mind the whole Christian life there, not just the sort of things that we might think of as explicitly spiritual or mystical. But we can come back to that if we need to. So those are some misconceptions. There are probably others out there. But let's switch now, Eric, to what we can know. So what can we know, just generally speaking, about angels, demons, Satan, the spiritual realm? So the first thing that I want to stress here is that our information about all of these topics is very limited. And most of the failings of the church have come from going beyond what scripture says. The Bible is a story about God and humanity and God's work of redemption of humanity. And angels and demons and Satan all make appearances in that because our story overlaps with theirs. But most of the details of their story are maybe hinted at and oftentimes just unknown. So there's going to be a lot of we don't knows. And even some very popularly held beliefs that some Christians hold, other Christians disagree with. So I want to give that as a precursor. But I'll go ahead and start with angels. So here's what we know biblically about angels. Angels are created beings, meaning that God made them like he made human beings. God makes everything. And they, in scripture, function in a couple of different ways. One is messengers or beings that execute God's decrees. Another way is sort of as a heavenly army that seems to fight for the side of heaven. And the third is as a sort of divine courtroom of people around the throne of God, uh, bowing down to him and worshiping him. So we know that much biblically about like, that's what angels are. Yeah, that's good. And I would agree with your first statement as well. Our information is, is totally limited. We can say those things that you said. We really should be careful about saying more. For the many centuries of the church, there's been speculation about angels. But you're right. The main drama of scripture is about human beings and God. And even there's even hints there when it comes to angels that angels are kind of on the sideline when it comes to the divine story, because it says, for instance, in Psalm 8, we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings man is for now. But when we have receive our crowns of glory, Hebrews kind of tells us using Psalm 8, that we, in a sense, are the kings and queens, God's vice regents, that um, in a sense become over the angels. And we actually judge angels, scripture says, and it also says that angels long to look into the inner workings of redemption. So clearly the story of Scripture is a story of man and God, but angels are there as the messengers, as the ministering spirits that come alongside a God's plan of redemption. So moving on to Satan now. Satan is a name that we most often attribute, though it's adversary, father of lies, the enemy, all kinds of things in Scripture. So what can we say about the origins of Satan? It's been popular for a long time to say that Satan is a fallen angel. And so he was an angel of God and then he fell. And many times it's very hard to see that in scripture, but people often refer to a passage in Ezekiel 
and one in Isaiah that referred to the morning star falling from heaven. And the morning star is where we get the name Lucifer. So he's an angel of light. So this, this morning star falls, and it's not super clear that that is Satan himself. He's not identified as Satan. And in fact, it is talking about some historical realities there. But that's often the traditional case for where Satan came from. He was in the heavens, and then he fell like a star. Let me go ahead and give the the biblically skeptical reading on that. And it's not that I disagree with it, but I don't think even that is as certain as people like to make it. So let me add, you you mentioned a couple of texts. Let me kind of give the full survey of the kind of Satan and demons, you know, and, and the fall of them thing. So you mentioned those two texts in Ezekiel and Isaiah. Jesus, just in passing in Luke 10, mentioned seeing Satan having fallen from heaven like lightning. Although that, depending on how you want to read that passage, could mean a lot of different things and may well be about the future rather than the past and Satan's defeat. There are two passages, one in Jude and one in 2 Peter 2, that talk about how there were angels that rebelled against God. Jude says they left their positions of authority and their proper dwellings, and he's chained them in gloomy darkness. And 2 Peter talks about how God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Some people also point to Revelation 13, where you see this heavenly battle between angels and Satan is cast down to earth. So very briefly, the issue is in Ezekiel and Isaiah, both of those texts are immediately about uh, worldly empires and their leaders that are being struck down by God. Tyre in the case of Ezekiel, Babylon in the case of Isaiah. I already mentioned the issues with Luke 10. Revelation 13, I think, is almost certainly about Jesus's future defeat of Satan. And in the two references to demons more generally as rebelling in some way against God and falling into sin certainly might be the best cases to view demons and Satan, therefore, as fallen angels. But there's issues even there, one of which is, for example, that some commentators want to read the events that are discussed there as being about Genesis 6, which is a whole other discussion about the sons of God and the daughters of man. Ooh, we should do a podcast on that. (laughs) And if that's the case, then those can't be about the fall of Satan because that happens after you already have Satan as the serpent appearing in the biblical story. So none of that is to say that that's not true, but all of it is to say that that's a good example of where I'm just kind of like, maybe as we discuss these things. Exactly. And we do need to say, though, that they are created. So it's not as though Satan has always existed and the demons have always existed as this uh, yang to God's yin or something like that. They were created at some point and they rebelled at some point, but that's pretty much all we can say definitively from scripture. So other things we can say about Satan and his role is that he tempts us. He leads us into sin and as well as his demons do. He's the father of lies. So he brings deception into our lives And of course, as Martin Luther would be quick to remind us, he brings accusations against us. So oftentimes when we are in seasons of accusing ourselves even or feeling like we're so horrible and that God doesn't love us and everything, many times that is Satan or his demons accusing us and reminding us that we are sinners. And Satan's role as an accuser, we should say, also has a sort of heavenly dimension. One of the central texts about Satan in the Old Testament in Zechariah 3, for example, is Satan accusing the high priest Zechariah in the heavenly courtroom of Israel's sins and God providing clean clothes for him to wear. So there's also that dimension of his accusation. Okay, I'm thinking of other things we can know about Satan. He's he's the leader of the demonic powers. So he is the, the head of 
those who oppose God. And what can we know about demons, Eric? They're evil spirits. Spirits in all of these discussions simply mean that they do not normally have physical bodies or physical form in the world. Biblically, they are a source of affliction and temptation. It does seem like we could probably view them as servants of Satan, sort of like angels are servants of God. Luke 11 calls Satan the prince of demons, for example, but even that is kind of messy. And then in certain instances, we have stories of demonic possession that happen. Almost all of those stories happen in the ministry of Jesus as he casts out demons. There are a few other times, maybe Saul's affliction with an evil spirit in the Old Testament. In Acts 19, we're told that the apostles cast out evil spirits. And in Acts 17, there's probably a story of Paul casting out an evil spirit from a woman. But that's the kind of like sum total of what we can say clearly from scripture about demons. Yeah, demons clearly are disturbed by Jesus's coming into the world. So clearly they are there throughout and something happens when Jesus comes on the scene. They have to identify him. He, he silences them often. He casts them out. But they're already there on the scene when Jesus comes in. So I don't really know what you think about this area, but what do you think the relationship is between like a person's health or like mental and spiritual health and the possession of demons? So is it, could it be the case that demons possess people and basically make them unhealthy in some ways, like the man who is naked and, you know, that has to be cast out or, or in the case of the girl who had seizures because of of demons, does that kind of thing still happen today? So we should probably just talk for a little while about demonic possession. Let's all, I'll maybe make a few general observations about it and then you can um, add anything that you want to. Let me just say like three things about that idea in scripture. One is that demonic possession is not the sum total of demonic activity in the world. And it's important to recognize that while demons in the spiritual realm and all of, you know, dark spiritual forces and all of that are at work in the world, that those stories where they particularly afflict and seem to almost inhabit a human being are not the, the sum total or even the primary way that that's true. Secondly, I already mentioned this, and this some people do not like, but I would very much stake out the claim that scripture would lead us to expect it to be rare in our experience of the world. So it is true that during Jesus's ministry, there are a number of stories of Jesus exercising demons, but it's also true that scripture wants us to recognize Jesus's ministry as the pivotal moment in sort of the spiritual war between heaven and the forces of Satan. And so we should expect there to be more activity and more visibleness and more direct conflict there than there is at other times. And it's relative rarity in the rest of scripture leads to that, especially because while there's a couple stories in the book of Acts of the apostles casting out demons, nowhere are we given kind of instructions and warnings and information in terms of the scripture's instructions to us as ordinary believers to expect that to be a normal part of our life. That said, Although we should expect it to be rare, it is certainly a thing that biblically we would have to say can happen. And I would be tempted from the examples we see in scripture to say, especially maybe in the extremities of sin or the most dehumanizing of circumstances, we might expect that to happen. I once met a guy that I'm pretty sure was demon possessed. That would be a story for another time, but also only once in my life in ministry. And then to bring all of that around to your original question, it is, I suppose, possible that there might be circumstances where demonic activity happens in our world and people mistake it for something like 
illness or something like that. But it is also true that scripture is very clear that most sickness in general for human beings is a result of the fall and human brokenness, not of specific demonic activity. Jesus goes around doing all kinds of healing. And then also as a small subset of that, he casts out demons. And so the idea that all of those things or most of those things are caused by demons is not biblical and can become very destructive when people start to believe it. Yeah, I'm with you. If anything, in the New Testament, it seems like the demons are coming seeking Jesus out, not the other way around. So he is going about healing people and teaching, and then they kind of show up and disturb things because they don't like his disturbance of their of their world. But it's not the case that every single person that he meets that he heals has a demon in them, and we should not expect that either. We also shouldn't live in fear of being possessed by Satan or by his demons because it's also clear that when you become a Christian, you are in this plane of light. You are a new person. You are transformed from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are not ordinarily as Christians possessed by demons. And even though I think that does happen, as you're saying, it's mostly in these corners where we see people focusing on magic and on things that can, can lead to those darker sources of powers being attracted there. Another thing, Eric, that we can say for sure from Scripture is that there is some kind of hierarchy between angels and demons, even though we're not sure exactly what that hierarchy is. Much ink in church history has been spilled on the nine different layers of angels and demons and this kind of thing. But Jesus does say to the apostles, he sends them out to cast out demons and to preach the gospel, and they come back and they can't cast out a demon. And this is at one point in Mark's gospel, he says, this kind can only be cast out with prayer and fasting. So there is a different kind of demon there. We know that there are angels and also archangels. And so that's really all that we can say when it comes to the hierarchies of these beings. And again, I just want to echo so many of the ideas we have about these things come from extra biblical sources. So Milton's Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno. Before that, things like Jewish Kabbalah and intertestamental Jewish traditions even our homeboys, Augustine and and such, engaged in a lot of speculation about angels and demons. Yes. And so that's where it's just worth emphasizing that, like, that stuff is out there and many Christians will endorse it. And it's not that I want to say that it's always wrong to entertain those questions. Far be it for me to question the choices of St. Augustine. But what is worrying to me is how many ideas and theologies get built on nothing or almost nothing. I think about a lot of the spiritual warfare literature that I've read that make much of like praying up hedges of protection and demons of certain like cities and localities and things. And those are like one phrase in Daniel that vaguely alludes to the, you know, the, the prince of some city or whatever. And, and then they build these whole robust theologies with systems of prayer and ways of understanding all of the events of your life around them. And that so quickly gets destructive for people and so quickly leads to kind of superstitions that distract them from Jesus. So let's begin to wrap up here, Eric. Let's talk about the end, because what's going to happen? What does scripture say to angels and demons and Satan in the end? I'll start us off with angels because that's the positive one. Angels end up in heaven with us. They're already there, of course. They're in the throne room. We join them more like. So in Revelation 7, there's this great picture of the nations being together and worshiping God. And it even mentions there specifically that the angels are also around the throne. And so I think John Owen said that 
God had made two rational sets of families or something like that. I don't know about his theology on that, but like basically the family of angels and the family of humans, if you want to think about it that way, come together in the end to worship God and live forever with him. And then Satan and his demons have lost and will lose is the other side of that story. People sometimes talk about the fourfold defeat of Satan. So Christ's temptation, first of all, you see Jesus is the second Adam triumphing over temptation where Adam fails. And then in Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom, there's this clear sense that the kingdom of God is coming and destroying the kingdom of this world. So like in Matthew 12, he talks about how he's casting out demons by the spirit of God and therefore the kingdom of God has come upon you. Third, in the cross and resurrection, they are pictured as a defeat of Satan. So like Colossians 2 talks about how he is subjecting him to open shame, triumphing over him in the cross. And then lastly, in the final judgment, in Revelation 20, God casts the devil and the demons that follow him into the lake of fire. In fact, interestingly, there's a real sense within the biblical story where properly speaking, hell is the place of judgment for Satan, and then human beings are joined in that fate with him because they sort of side with him in the spiritual conflict of the world, but that it's really Satan and his demons that are the the first targets of the eternal judgment of hell. Let's wrap up today, Eric, by bringing in some practicality here, just as we close some quick thoughts on what we should do with this. We kind of have spent a lot of time, honestly, saying what you shouldn't do. You know, you shouldn't speculate on these things. Uh, You shouldn't think that there's an angel and a demon on your shoulder. You shouldn't think that you become an angel, all this stuff. But what should we be doing, spiritually speaking? And I'll start us off. One of the things that scripture tells us that we need to do is we need to pray against evil. So in the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from evil. So praying against demons, against Satan, is an appropriate use of prayer. And so when you come into a situation that may be spiritually charged and there may be wrongdoing, it is appropriate to pray not just that the Lord would help you, but that he would destroy the work of the enemy in this place. Yeah. When I think about practical applications, the biggest one, this will take maybe just a minute to unpack, but is to recognize that. While there's real limits to what we can say specifically about angels and demons and things like that, there's another perspective I don't think we've really talked about, which is that on the other hand, scripture would say all of life is spiritually charged and every struggle that we have and every dimension of the world is spiritually charged. So when we talk about powers and principalities, those aren't just work through like weird possessions of demons and stuff like the primary ways those work out is through the oppositions of the powers and kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God. And so scripture kind of views this broader spiritual conflict between light and darkness as something that we are all caught up in and we need to recognize that dimension to everything. And this is what I meant maybe back at the beginning when I talked about the limits of C.S. Lewis's thing is that it seems to me that even people that are really interested in angels and demons as a specific topic actually miss that broader reality. I'm going to actually this Sunday preach a little bit about demons because we're preaching through the gospel of Luke and we have to talk about Jesus casting out a demon. And one of the things that I was struck by as I just thought about how people talk about this, this is the example I used is to say, my concern is this. You hear evangelicals talk about, say, like the occult, tarot cards and Ouija boards and mediums and all that stuff. And scripture is opposed to the occult, and that is regarded as a thing that has a spiritual dimension, and it's trying to take spiritual power without God, and so that's why it's wrong. But what worries me more than the occult is the way that evangelicals treat it as sort of a special case. 
So like if some kid messes around with a Ouija board and then they like are wrestling with temptation to sin, people will look at that and be like that, that's spiritual warfare. That's, you know, that, that's spiritual powers. But if that same kid watches television advertisements and they lead him into a temptation to sin, people are just like, oh, that's just good marketing. Right. When really biblically, we would say that that is just as much spiritual warfare. And this person caught in this sort of spiritual tension between light and darkness as when it's some obvious thing. And I worry about that because I think we actually, even people really into spiritual warfare, often neglect the spiritual dimension of all of our lives. Yeah. What I hear you saying is we need these moments where we just recognize that there is a seen realm and an unseen realm, and there are things going on in both, and they interact with one another. And therefore, we should be cosmically aware of the the forces of evil and what they could be doing to us, and also praying for the forces of, of for God's heavenly host to, to defend us. And recognizing that we're playing for stakes in this life, which is really the point of it, right? That like, when we're wrestling with temptation, it's not just, oh, am I going to like do a bad thing that means I'm going to have a bad day or something that there are forces of darkness seeking, seeking to forward the cause of sin and forces of the kingdom of heaven seeking to push it back and that our choices are actually a part of that struggle and conflict. Yeah, and on that point, we are called to fight against these forces. And so Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God and it says to do that so that we can defend ourselves against the enemy's fiery darts. That's Ephesians 6. So the full armor of God, that's the shield of faith, you know, it's the, the breastplate of righteousness, there is a way that we can gear up for this fight, and that is found in the means of grace, in equipping ourselves with Scripture, in having a life of prayer and a life of God, and 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 then using those pieces of armor to defend ourselves and to attack the strongholds of evil in our lives. One last sort of application note that I'll add is that it's also appropriate for us to just remember that we walk in the victory won by Jesus. And so while we should pray and wrestle with temptation, recognizing the spiritual realities of life. I mean, Jesus has beaten the devil. Jesus will finally destroy the devil. And as we are in him, by faith, a part of God's family, united with Christ, that victory is what we live in as well. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Not bad for 40 minutes. A lot to say there in terms of the spiritual realm. But let's switch gears to what's good, the segment of our show where we end and talk about something that has been good, true, enjoyable, for us most recently. And so Eric's turn this week. Eric, what's good? So I'm going to recommend a YouTube channel, actually. The channel is called Extra Credits, and it is a series of, it's actually several series of videos about different topics. It started actually as a series of videos about video game design, which is one of many topics I'm sometimes interested in and was watching some of those. But they have a whole series called Extra History, and a smaller series called Extra Mythology that are basically these animated, narrated 10-minute videos that explain different, significant, interesting stories throughout history. Often they'll have like a series of five or six or whatever videos to tell a longer story, but they just do an excellent job of narrating things from ranging from like the fall of Rome to more obscure topics. The one that I would maybe suggest listening to because it's kind of recent and one of those events that almost nobody thinks about but that still really pertains to the modern world is their series about the opium wars in China in the 1800s. But it's a pretty deep rabbit hole. They have a ton of videos. And if you're like me and you're kind of interested in history, I think that they might provide some really great, interesting stories for you. 
So I'm hopped on the YouTube right now while you were talking and looking at this. So is this the tone of these things kind of like whimsical or funny or something or? So not really. There's occasionally kind of a sardonic bent to some of their observations, especially as they point out the sort of ridiculousness of people in some of these historical stories. But they're actually very detailed recountings. And if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, although they're not as visible on YouTube because they have less views for most of their series, after they get done with it, they do a lies episode, which is actually live recorded with the guy who writes for them, where he walks through all of the ways that he kind of oversimplified things in order to tell a story that people could follow. <laughs> yeah, so check that out online. So what's what's the recommendation again, Eric? It is the channel Extra Credits and specifically their Extra History and Extra Mythology series of videos. And don't be thrown off by the little bobblehead figures in the video. This is serious stuff. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, there's a few things you could do that would really help us out. Most importantly, keep this conversation going. We would love to have so many people engaged with this. Grab someone, grab a a drink at your favorite spot, hang out and talk about this and let them know about this podcast. You can also find us online at all the places you would expect. Most recently, we are on Instagram at Simply Faithful Pod. That's the handle there for Instagram, Simply Faithful Pod. You can also find us on Twitter at Faithful Podcast, Simply Faithful on Facebook, and simplyfaithful.org is our website. In all of those places, we'd love to see you. If you share something on there that's especially interesting, we might even talk about it in an upcoming episode. We would also appreciate a rating on your podcast marketplace of choice. And most importantly, we would love it if you shared this podcast with some friends who might enjoy it. We're super grateful for those of you that we've seen already sharing it. And we would just love to have more faces around the table. That said, until next time, I'm Gray. I'm Eric, and this has been Simply Faithful.